Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest, Professor Nancy Piercy. You may remember her. She I interviewed her on the show for her book, Love Thy Body, a while ago. And today we're going to be talking about her new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. This is an amazing book. Um, I read it a while ago and it is so, so good for Christians to understand what true biblical masculinity is and why the culture is assaulting men, basically, and assaulting masculinity. So I'm happy to have her talk about this on the show. Um, Nancy Piercy is a best-selling author and speaker. She's written many books, including Total Truth, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, which I also highly recommend, Finding Truth, Love Thy Body, and then today's book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome, Professor Nancy Piercy. And thank you so much, Beckett. It's good to see you again. So good to see you again. I'm really excited about your new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. This is such a good book. But let's, let's start with the good news. People often accuse evangelical Christian men of being oppressive patriarchs prone to abuse, but you make the surprising claim that they test out as having the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. How is that possible? Explain. Yeah, so I wrote the book because I saw a problem and I saw a solution. You know, you don't write a book if you just see the problem. But not only does our culture as a whole uh, attack men, you know, it has become socially acceptable to express incredible hostility against men. You know, the one that caught my eye was the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I, thought, <laughs> I really? remember that. Yeah, I remember that post. <laughs> the Washington Post and uh, and the Huffington Post had an article uh, uh, with, the, with the hashtag, Kill All Men. And th- there are books out now with, with titles like, I Hate Men, No Good Men, and are men necessary? <laughs> you can even buy T-shirts that say "So many men, so little ammunition." 
So I thought, okay, why has it become socially acceptable to express such hostility against men? I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And of course, as you put it, it's evangelical men who are often considered exhibit A of toxic masculinity because anyone who believes in any form of male headship or authority in the home. And in fact, let me read one of them to you because this one, this too is pretty shocking. This was the um, co-founder of the Church 2 movement and said the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And so when I read these accusations, my first thought was, you're not paying attention to the data from the social scientists, because I was out there reading studies by sociologists and psychologists who were finding the exact opposite. As you said, they test out as being the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. And by the way, they do uh, interview the wives separately, which is important. And so what they're really saying is that the wives report the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and appreciation. Evangelical fathers test out as the most engaged with their kids, both in terms of shared activities like sports or church youth group, and in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce of any group in America, and the real shocker was they have the lowest rates of domestic violence. And so it's exactly opposite of the messages that we're constantly getting in the media. In fact, let me read you a quote from, this is my go-to sociologist. <laughs> he did the largest study. He's uh, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. He's considered by many people to be the top marriage sociologist in the country. And so he gets published in places like the New York Times. And so this is a quote from the New York Times. Sometimes it's better if you have a single concrete fact to, pe to peg it on. He says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. And, and by the way, they talk about wives because, of course, the idea is that uh, evangelical men are oppressive, insensitive, chauvinistic patriarchs. Yeah. So they always focus on, well, are the wives happy? The happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And not even the Christian world knows this. You know, when I speak publicly on these subjects at, you know, Christian schools and conferences and so on, people, you can always see people calling to sit back and their jaws drop open because this has not gotten out into the public yet. To find this, I had to go digging in the academic sociological journals in order to bring this out. And so this was really the main reason I wrote the book. As I said, we need to get this information out there that evangelical men who are actually, you know, living out their faith, you know, who are conscientious, who are committed, are actually doing it extremely well, better than any other major group in America. And this is not just a rah-rah sermon from a pastor. You know, this is hard scientific data. This is rigorous empirical testing. And so we should be confident in bringing it out, both into the church, but also into the wider society. Well, you mentioned divorce. Why do we always hear that Christian the Christian divorce rate is the same as the society's divorce rate? Yeah, that's the first pushback I always get <laughs> because people say, well, in fact, in my research, I found that it is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. 
And so the researchers went back to the data and they unpacked the really committed Christian men from nominal Christian men. Mm-hmm. And my students don't know what nominal means, so I have to explain. <laughs> nominal means in name only, because N-O-M is Latin for name. And so these are men who might check the Baptist box in a survey like that, but who actually attend church rarely, if at all. And their numbers are horrifying. <laughs> They're actually worse than secular men. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They are the least engaged with their kids. They have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular couples. And then the real stunner, they have the highest rate of domestic violence of any group in America, Mm. higher than secular men. And so this is why the numbers get skewed. It's because if you put together the committed men who are better than the secular world and nominal Christian men who are worse in the secular world, and you put those together, obviously you get misleading statistics. And so I think this is the first time that the researchers have pulled this apart, which is incredibly helpful for us as we make the case that Christian men are doing a good job, the, the numbers are thoroughly behind us, but a lot of people have encountered the nominal men. And so yeah. they're kind of, t- t- uh, you might say they're ruining our reputation. <laughs> you know, they're the ones who are giving the impression that Christians are are actually the worst of the sort of toxic men out there. Yeah, and your your book says this is fascinating too. When when you talk about this in your book, the toxic war on masculinity, it's you say that men are being torn between two competing scripts for masculinity. What are those two competing scripts? Yeah, let me give you a little background on that. Um, you get to hear background that's not in the book. This is the most controversial book I've ever written. And that surprised me. I really thought my earlier book, Love Thy Body, would be more controversial because it deals with issues like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism. But I found this one actually uh, triggers people even more. I was teaching it in my classroom and I was leading reading groups on it and they would tell their friends and family. And the first question invariably was, whose side is she on? (laughs) With that tone. Whose side is she on? As if you have to either be a male bashing feminist, you know, or you have to be an angry reactionary. And so I found, I put this study at the front of the book because it sort of disarms that initial hostility. So this was a study that was done by a sociologist, not a Christian, and he's, he's very well known. And so he speaks all around the world and he came up with this clever experiment where he asks young men two questions. First, he says, what does it mean to be a good man? A good man. If you're at a funeral and in the eulogies say he was a good man, what does that mean? Men all around the world had no trouble answering that. From, you know, from Australia to Germany to Brazil, they would say things like honor, integrity, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy. (laughs) I like that one. Be a protector, be a provider, be responsible, be generous. In fact, there is um, another anthropologist who did the first ever study of concepts of masculinity. And he found the same thing. No matter what concepts of masculinity a culture holds, they all agree on what he called the three Ps. That to be a man is to provide, protect, and procreate. Mm -hmm. Build into the next generation. Mm -hmm. 
And so it seems to be universal. Then the sociologist would ask a follow-up question and he'd say, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh no, that's completely different. (laughs) And they said, I'll read you, so you know this is not my language. (laughs) It means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like Andrew Tate wrote that. (laughs) Well, isn't that true? Yeah, so the real man, quote unquote, as opposed to the good man, does tend to be those traits that we call toxic. And certainly if separated from the moral standard of the good man, it can slide into entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And so it really gives us a new strategy, I think, for dealing with these issues because because men don't respond well to being called toxic. Mm -hmm. Nobody would. And so instead, we can look at the innate knowledge that men have of what it means to be good. They're made in God's image. They do know what it means to be a good man. It's innate. It's inherent. And so it's universal, as these two studies show. And so what we can do is we can, a a better strategy is to affirm them and support them and encourage them in doing what they do know is right. Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. We all know what's right. Yeah. And so it gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. We'll be right back after this short break. Yeah, I like that. And you say that, well, men are falling behind in education, employment, health, and even life expectancy. Why are people ignoring the real problems men face today? Yeah, so I had a a female student, by the way, who said, we always hear about all the issues that women face from sexism to discrimination to sexual harassment. So we think the men are doing fine. Yeah. (laughs) It turns out the men are not doing fine. You know, yes, yeah. the top five to 10% are CEOs and presidents and so on. But on average, men are actually doing worse than they were in the past. Boys are falling behind at all levels of education from kindergarten to college. I mean, I teach at a university. And I'll tell you, most universities now are 60-40, 60% female, 40% male. More women than men go to graduate school. More women than men go to professional school like law and medicine. Mm-hmm. And and as as adults, men are falling behind, as you mentioned, more likely to commit suicide, to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, to be mentally ill, to be homeless. Um, men's employment level has gone down. It's not showing up because these men have stopped looking for work. So the researchers had to dig a little deeper. And what they're telling us now is men's unemployment rates are at depression era levels. Wow. It was stunned. Depression era levels. And even their life expectancy has gone down in recent years. Women's has stayed the same. So it's not a general trend. It's only men's life expectancy that's gone down. There's a magazine called The New Scientist that had an article saying the major demographic factor now in early death is being male. <laughs> so, so I do think it's time for us to start asking, what can we do to help men? You know, can we have a little compassion here for for men? The the first book on the subject ever written, I, I think, was Christine Hoff Sommers. She wrote a book called mm-hmm. The War Against Boys. You remember that one? Yeah. And she said every time she tried to get a program going for boys and men, it was opposed by feminists who were afraid that if you help men, you're going to stop helping women. 
we don't have to, it's not an either or, you know, it's not a zero sum game. I think it's time that we start showing compassion for the boys who are falling behind. I have two sons. So of course, you know, I, I have a dog in this fight. I want my sons to do well. And, and they're very familiar with the negative uh, attitude towards men today. I, I quote a psychiatrist who writes for the Wall Street Journal. And she says, I'm getting more and more young men in my practice who feel beaten down and emasculated because they feel that they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. And a recent survey found that 46% of American men, so almost half, say that discrimination, oh, uh, that discrimination is so bad that now it feels like men are being punished just for being men. And even if you don't agree with that, that is a lot of people who think that men are now getting the bad deal. And so, yeah, yeah that's, I, I think it's time for us to start addressing these problems. Yeah. And some, some would say, why should we worry about men? Because don't they still occupy positions of, of power in our society? Aren't, aren't like the leader, the main leaders in society men. So why should we worry about, why should we worry about men? Right. Because on average they are doing worse. In other words, it's easy to be um, it's easy to be distracted by the fact that yes men go to the level of CEOs and presidents and uh, Hollywood film directors and so on and so we're not paying attention to the numbers that show that men are doing worse there are books coming out now with with titles like the boy crisis the trouble with boys why boys fail and so even at that level, boys are much more likely to fall behind, mm-hmm. to drop out of school, to do poorly in school. Apparently, school tends to be um, geared more towards what are natural gifts for girls, like fine motor control and verbal skills, you know, using a scissors, coloring. <laughs> so all the way in kindergarten, boys are falling behind. One guy who wrote a book on the subject said, girls are considered the, the, the gold standard and boys are treated as defective girls. So that's what we're up against now with, you know, all the way, like I said, from kindergarten up. That's why we wow. should care. Where, so where did the, the, the term toxic masculinity originate? Where did that, who coined that term? Yeah, it started a lot further back than most people realize and you know if you're going to stand effectively against a social trend you need to know where did it start where did it come from how did it develop most people think it's probably from you know the 1960s second wave feminism but actually you see the literature start to use terms like that all the way back at the industrial revolution so prior to the industrial revolution most men were working alongside their wives and children right in the family farm the family industry, the family business. Which, by the way, as you say in your book, is much more healthy for children to to be raised by a mother and a father and like to be around them, you know, instead of like the father going away to work for 80 hours a week. (laughs) You know, it's like that's that's a much healthier way to raise your children. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I have a whole chapter on on what did this mean for boys? But first, what did it mean for masculinity? Obviously, when men were working with their wives and children, the ethos, the cultural expectations were much more geared towards caretaking. You know, you needed to be gentle and patient if you're working with your kids all day and training them in adult skills. And the, the concept of authority was even different back then. It meant 
that you had responsibility for the common good. You know, it didn't mean I get to do what I want, but authority meant, you know, that I look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you, but who looks out for the common good? And that's what the position of authority was seen as, so whether it's the marriage or the family, the school, the church, whatever, who looks out for the common good. Mm-hmm. So how did we lose all that? The turning point historically was the Industrial Revolution, because as you just mentioned, that's when fathers started being gone all day from the home. Work was taken out of the home and men had to follow their work into offices and factories. And for the first time in American history, men were not working alongside people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. Mm-hmm. And it did seem that in that kind of a workplace, it was it was imperative that men learned how to look out for number one, you know, be aggressive, be assertive, be egocentric, be acquisitive, you know, make it in the commercial world. Doggy and dog. The doggy dog. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and you see the literature changing already at the time. People were protesting. I mean, they were not happy about this. So you see a lot of the literature protesting that our men are, are losing that caretaking, godly definition of masculinity that they had in the past, that they that they were and not like I said, not only was it um, the industrial work situation, but this this was when America started to secularize as well, because after the Industrial Revolution, you also had these large public institutions grow up from the factory industry financial institutions and banks um, and the government of course, and the university. And people began to say that these public institutions need to be, need to operate by scientific principles by which they meant value free. In other words, don't bring your private values into the public arena, which right. is what we still hear today. Right? And so as the, because men were getting their education through secularizing universities and they were working in the secularized uh, workplace, men were in fact losing a biblical ethic. And what happens then? Their behavior was getting worse. Things like crime increased dramatically. Drinking, alcoholism, prostitution, all increased dramatically in the 19th century. So there were two, so there were two things. There was the, you know, the economic change of the Industrial Revolution, but that proved to be a catalyst also. Mm-hmm. for the secularization of the concept of masculinity, which then became a much more toxic definition. So that was the turning point. And I, in my book, of course, I go through several more stages, but that was the important turning point was the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That, 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 that makes sense. And it's, it's, it's amazing that it, went, it goes that far back and that that was the key turning point. And it's like, you know, when fathers are out of the home, things are not as as ideal as as they could be. Um, and you talk about you talk about uh, why are men cast as villains and women as, as victims in our current culture? Where did these stereotypes come from? Well, we're back to the 19th century, as men's behavior was growing worse. Um, and by the way, especially younger men, as they were coming in from the countryside to find work in the cities. They were leaving behind structures of accountability, like their family, their church, their village, and falling prey to the vices that were more common in the city. And so that's why you see this huge growth of reform movements in the 19th century. There were, uh, I'll give you one fact. 
1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. So there was a reason, there was a temperance movement. <laughs> you know, <laughs> men were out drinking away their money so that the families were destitute. They were coming home and beating their wives because they were drunk. You know, there was a lot of drunkenness, public drunkenness, you know, people falling out, falling down in the streets and in the gutters. So it was Especially really in England. England had that uh, big problem with that. And and we did too, right? Yeah. So, you know, p- people tend to look at the Tempest movement as, you know, some sort of Victorian prudery, but no, there it, it was a real social problem at the time. And th- then there, of course, there was the abolition movement against slavery. There were movements against uh, sex trafficking and prostitution. There were movements against gambling. There were a host of movements in the 19th century. But most of them were driven by women against what were clearly male vices. It's one of my historians, you know, one of my favorite historians is a feminist who said, there was little doubt as to the sex of the tavern keeper, the slave master, the drunkard, the seducer. In other words, there tended to be kind of a social, uh, sexual dimension to the reform movements. And alongside that, it was driven by a new idea that women were morally superior to men. And this was new. We kind of, I think many people are familiar with that double standard today. You know, that's in a dating relationship, for example, it's a woman who's supposed to keep, uh, draw the line and keep things in check. But that was new in the 19th century. Up until then, all the way back to the Greeks and Romans, it was thought that men were morally superior. They thought the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight, and they thought men were more rational, and therefore men were more virtuous than women. In fact, mm-hmm. the word virtue, the root of the word virtue is V-I-R, which is Latin for man. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, like the word virile? Virile, yeah. <laughs> so virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. And so it was a huge reversal in the 19th century when people said, well, the public sphere needs to be value free. Well, where were we going to cultivate values then? I mean, people just didn't want to just give them up. You know, values like love and altruism and affection and kindness. Well, those would be cultivated in the private realm and they were the domain of women because women were still in the private realm. And so for the first time, you begin to get the language of you know, women as the moral guardians of society. So you can see why already that's that's the victim villain dynamic starting already that women are the victims, men are the the bad guys and the villains in this in this drama, and and even the literature of the day, the novels of the day, often portrayed you know the good woman who's been victimized by an evil man who's drinking and beating her and so on, and committing adultery. Even the literature of the day was replete with stories like that. So that dynamic of the double standard, uh, women's being seen as somehow the conscience of men, it goes all the way back to the 19th century as well. Wow. And and you, let's, let's turn to Charles Darwin, because your book says that Darwinian theory of evolution normalized many traits in men that are today labeled as toxic. How, how does Darwinian theory of evolution play into this? Oh, yeah, I'm glad you asked that because Darwin publishes The Origin of Species in 1859. 
-hmm. And Darwinian writers begin to say that in the struggle for survival, the men who come out on top and who are therefore our ancestors are the men who were ruthless, rugged, individualistic, uh, predatory, brutal, savage. You get the picture. Yeah. And so they began to say that this is who we really are, or at least men. This is who men really are under the surface, uh, under the thin veneer of civilization. That was a common phrase at the time, you know, always ready to break through. Right. And so, and, and Darwin himself argued that women were inferior to men, you know, that they were mentally inferior, intellectually inferior to men. Um, he acknowledged, by the way, that they were more sensitive, intuitive, but he said, those are the traits of the lowest species. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so even even women's positive traits were signs that they were inferior. So if we can if we think of the Victorian pedestal, you know, that women were put on a pedestal for a while when they were thought to be moral, morally superior, Darwin kicks them off that pedestal and puts them at the at the lower rung of the ladder on the you know the evolutionary ladder. So this was a huge change because up until now, people had said urged men to live up to the image of God in them. And now they were being urged to live down to the beast within. That was a common phrase. Uh, this is when the Tarzan books became popular. Uh, there's a whole series, you, you realize this, about 50 books. And the reason it was so popular is here's a guy who's raised by the apes. And so he still has that wildness inside of him. And even after he learns European customs and languages, at the end of the book, he says to Jane, I am still a wild beast at heart. And so that was the message of Darwinism, is that a man finds his true self not by being godly, not by being committed to his wife and kids, but by going out into the woods and, you know, being savage and wild and barbarian. Uh, I think that was a, an extremely harmful message. And I think you still see it. Too. Well, Robert Bly, uh, you're the... Uh, some of the men's movements today um, are very much oriented towards, you know, you find your true self by finding that sort of wild, uncivilized barbarian within, the savage within. It sounds like Rousseau's The Noble Savage, yeah. It's, Just, it was partly influenced by that, yeah. Yeah, because uh -huh. he was around that time as well. Um, fortunately, people like Stephen Meyer and David Berlinski, who's going to be on the show next week, they blow giant holes through, through Darwin's theory of evolution, which I love. Um, but uh, you say that the, the long, it's, this is interesting because I was part of this problem. The long-term strategy for preventing toxic behavior in men for, is for fathers to invest deeply in their sons, but the media portrays fathers as incompetent idiots. Where did that negative image come from? And it's, it's interesting because, you know, I used to act in many, many commercials um, and I almost all of those commercials, I was the bumbling <laughs> husband or boyfriend. I was the, I was the incompetent husband or boyfriend in every single one of those, except maybe with the exception of one or two, but it, it's just, so talk about that, how the media portrays fathers and, and, and men. Uh, that's such an interest, interesting part of your history. Yeah, I mean, everybody pretty much knows that on television and in ads, the father's portrayed as incompetent, the dimwit, the doofus dad. But again, to counter it, we need to know where it came from. And most people don't realize that, again, it's the Industrial Revolution. When men 
had to leave the home to follow their work, they were no longer deeply involved with their family. They got sort of got out of touch with the family dynamics. They didn't know their children as well. Um, and you see, again, you see it already in the 19th century. The literature of the time begins to lament that fathers are no longer deeply involved with their kids. The leading psychologist of the day wrote, never before in American history has the boy been so wild, you know, unsupervised by his father, and half orphaned. I love that phrase. Mm. He said they're half orphaned um, compared to what they were. And he said they, they've been left up to female guidance in the home, the school, and the church. And so because men were not deeply involved in their families, already you start to see people saying, well, they've become irrelevant. They're, they're incompetent. Since they didn't know what their kids needed, they were painted as incompetent. Right. And so already you see it back then. And, and the boys were, in fact, growing up unsupervised compared to the past. And this is where we got the notion, by the way, that, well, boys will be boys. Do you realize nobody said that before? Nobody thought the boys were particularly misbehaving. You know, if anything, the opposite, because as I said before, it was thought that men were more virtuous. And so it was thought that boys, you know, would be even stronger than girls in holding their negative passions in check. And so this was totally new. The idea that somehow boys are rambunctious and rowdy and rule breaking. And, and the books of uh, the books of the time show it. Uh, before that, the novels for children had been written very didactic and moralistic, you know, showing good mm -hmm. boys to be a good a model, you know, how to behave. And all of a sudden they, sh they shifted and they started portraying the bad boy, the misbehaving boy as a protagonist. In fact, the first book on, that made that shift was actually called The Story of a Bad Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the best known are, of course, Huckleberry Finn and yeah. Tom Sawyer. When Mark Twain wrote Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, he was intentionally parodying the earlier moralistic books. So this is a big part, too, of where the negative definition of the masculine character came from. You know, now we see boys from the time they're quite young. We tend to expect of them to act poorly, to not be able to be mm -hmm. undisciplined, to not be able to sit still at school and so on. And so the negative expectations of men starts with boys. And that began with the Industrial Revolution. And so how do we remedy that? I mean, what are some, how do we remedy this? Because what are some practical steps fathers can take to be more involved, not only with their sons, but their daughters as well? Yeah, you can't write a book like this without having some solutions. And so I do have a whole chapter on how we can maybe flex the workplace somewhat so that fathers can be more involved with their kids. And so at this level, it's uh, mostly anecdotes. So I have lots and lots of anecdotes showing men who were able to work, you know, part-time from home. The pandemic did have a very slight silver lining in that a lot of fathers discovered they did enjoy being more involved with their kids. I cite a study in my book finding that 65% of fathers said that after the pandemic is over, they don't want to go back full-time. And the, the New York Times did another study, which is not in the book because it's more recent, um, but I love this title. The title was, during the pandemic, many fathers got closer to their kids and they don't want to lose that. Yeah. So I, I have a lot of, like I said, anecdotes. For example, um, sometimes it's helpful to have a concrete story or two. 
one of my students was married to an IT professional who came home during the pandemic. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved in the homeschooling. He decided he would be the one to prepare lunch every day for the family. He was able to take his kids to soccer and choir practice. And he was taking up so much of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to start a part-time job. She, um, she's an opera singer. <laughs> I, had a, I had a student who was not an opera singer, and she started a voice studio. And so the whole family benefited from the increased income. And I interviewed her husband, and he said, I am never going back to a cubicle. <laughs> and, and then the final kicker is he told me this. The time that I used to spend commuting to work, I now spend praying with my wife every morning. Wow. So CEOs, I also quote some CEOs because, of course, for a long time, they were afraid to do any sort of flexibility of the workplace. And I quote some CEOs who say, hey, all of our fears were totally exploded. You know, we thought they would slough off. You know, we thought that productivity would decline. And they said during the pandemic, when people worked at home, productivity did not decline at all. They said, in fact, in fact, people have a tendency to overwork when they're home, right? And the people I interviewed, by the way, also said that. They said, the hardest part about working from home is knowing when to stop. <laughs> Tell me about it. I do that. I only work from home and I never know when to stop. Um, yeah, I think this is a good, I mean, I think this trend from the pandemic, that trend is a great one. And I think it's going to continue, hopefully. And it's for women too, of course, because the industrial revolution not only took men's work out of the home, it took women's work out of the home. And yeah. women used to have a huge economic role to play, which was, you know, a big part of their self-esteem. They knew that they were indispensable with, uh, you know, canning foods and making butter and baking bread and making clothes from scratch and so on. And they also, by the way, joined their husbands. If their husband was a, um, a wheelwright you know, or a arms maker or a silversmith, you know, they were working alongside their husbands and they lost all of that in the industrial revolution. And so, by the way, this is really the main reason for the feminist movement is that women did experience a loss in all that creative and interesting and, economically productive work, which mm -hmm. also led to a decline in their status because, you know, if they're not really contributing anymore, already in the 19th century, you got, you begin to see newspaper articles saying that, oh, women are lazy and idle. You know, they're just at home spending their husband's money. So women lost a great deal of status. And so I also think that bringing work home is for women too. But Beckett, I don't know any women who are, who are not <laughs> who are not working from home women who are home with children yes in our day almost almost have to bring in an income and so most of them are but the pandemic helped because it made a lot more um professions doable at home for women as well yeah well we're gonna leave it there for now guys uh the book is the war the toxic war on masculinity where can people connect with you and where can people get this book yeah, so obviously the main places where you like to buy your books, whether it's Amazon, christianbook.com, or hopefully you have a real bookstore down the street. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> um, but I also have a brand new website, so go check it out. It's, it's nancypiercy.com. Uh, but my my publisher helped me uh, re rework it so it's bright and colorful and go take a look. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us, Nancy Piercy. Thank you for talking about this a very important book. Please, guys, please go get this book. 
Thank you for watching and we will see you next week. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of the Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Want to learn more about God and His will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.